0: Covering verses 1 through 16 this morning, and as you get there, you'll stand to your feet as I read the scriptures for us. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea, by the other side of the Jordan. And the multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote to you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together Let not man separate. And in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And then they brought little children to him, that they might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Father, we thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this is a a relevant text for our culture today, and it's a touchy one because many, uh, <coughs> even in the church, have experienced divorce. There is this kind of an unspoken thing in some gatherings where if you've go- experienced divorce, you're sort of a second-class citizen, a second-class Christian, if you will. And nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> We've all sinned and fallen short of perfection. And uh, those who have experienced need to be treated with grace and love as God does each one of us who he forgives. It, it does uh, put a scar on the soul and the heart and the life of a person. It's very injurious, as we'll see here. But where else would a person who's gone through divorce go? Where else can they find comfort and friendship? Where else can they experience healing? If it isn't in the body of Christ, then they're probably not going to receive it. And so it's so important that we are very gracious and kind and merciful to people who have endured uh, that horrible experience of going through a divorce. Uh, Their heart has been ripped in two. They, They were one and now they've been ripped in and And so it's very difficult and so as we look at this particular portion of scripture we you know you sort of like well, why is it here (laughs) you know why did they the writer place this information it's uh, the parallel passage uh, that's close to this with a few added details is uh, Matthew 19 uh, 1 through uh, 10 so you can you know put that in your notes and we'll refer to it A little bit, but it's good to compare the two there. But the context here is suffering. For the last couple of weeks in the ministry of Jesus, he's been telling the disciples that he's going to be going to Jerusalem and he's going to be rejected by the establishment. They're going to uh, scourge him, beat him, and mock him, and turn him over to the Gentiles, and they're going to crucify him. And, of course, the disciples are not picking up on what Jesus is putting down at all. Uh, they're thinking uh, he's spiritualizing it some way because they're convinced in their minds, and they were right, <laughs> that he is the Messiah, but their view of Messiah was that he would reign, that he would take the throne of David and put down the Romans, which was very uh, satisfactory in the minds of all the Israelis at that point. But they didn't understand that nor For God to establish his kingdom, it had to be one that that established the spirit and the priorities of the spirit of man first. And the greatest need that man has and mankind has is the need for forgiveness. And so the purpose of the cross must be fulfilled. So we're in this context here of suffering. All the while that he's talking about the suffering that he's going to experience, the disciples are discussing and arguing among themselves who's the greatest. And so he continues to keep with this theme of suffering, in in one sense, in that they're going to have to uh, die to self, if you will, (laughs) instead of always seeking to be top first and preeminent to be last and less significant and to be humble. And then he uses, as we know, the children as an example or characteristics of children. And... Uh, so, as we made our way through this, we see that uh, the issue uh, that causes most suffering in a person's life is sin. And so when sin is involved, we need forgiveness. And as we see here, can you think of a more potential uh, situation that's filled with hurts and damage than home, than the marriage relationship, than The home and raising children, and the need to exercise forgiveness. So it's the family setting, and he brings it to bear. There's suffering that can be that happens within the family setting, there's damage that happens within the marriage relationship through sin, and there needs to be forgiveness, there needs to be an understanding there. So, in Exercising grace and goodness within the church, within the family, is the need to first and foremost experience it yourself personally. You cannot give something you don't have. And you hear people say, well, I just don't have it within me. Well, okay, nobody does. God gives you the grace when it comes to forgiving someone who has injured you deeply. It's very important that you first and foremost see yourself as done, damaged, as it were, to the nature and character of God in that He made you and me in His image. And when we sin, we sin against God. And yet God forgives. So it's important for us to having received that forgiveness now begin to extend that forgiveness. And for some of us probably the best way to do that is to look at forgiveness and injuries as a debt. You know, nobody likes to, you know, give money to someone so to speak, have good favor with them and then uh, not be paid back. You know, that's just you just nobody likes debt. Nobody it's it's kind of nice to be out of debt. You know, from a financial standpoint. But if you look at sin as a debt, and what I've encouraged over the years is for people to uh, write down the offense. Write down on a piece of paper the debt that you feel that someone owes you. How they've injured you. How they've wronged you. And then just lay that out before God. Lord, this is what they've done, and man, am I upset, am I angry. Just tell the Lord exactly how you feel and the depth of your feeling. He can handle it. And then you take that piece of paper and you pray, Lord, even as you've forgiven my sins, I am forgiving this person's sins. It doesn't matter whether or not they deserve it, but you're going to cancel that debt by ripping that paper in half and saying from your heart, Lord, I forgive them. I'm leaving all judgment with you. And until you do that, the healing process will will not begin. Forgiveness is the first step in having your heart healed. In our text here this morning, we are actually reading some of the very last teachings of Jesus. He's within a week or so of being crucified. And uh, he's. if you look at... Um, the wordings that are given, he came from Caesarea Philippi back down into Capernaum, which is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee at the time. And then he goes south from there into Samaria and then into Judea. And then he crosses to the east over the Jordan River and, uh, on the King's Highway. And then he would make his way south on the King's Highway towards Bethage and eventually Well, Jericho first and then up over uh, the Mount of Olives and all. So that's sort of the the path that they're on, the route of the king's highway. And uh, as he makes his way on this journey, immediately the multitudes gather. And of course, coming into the area of Judea, he would have come into the um, jurisdiction of Herod. And so we wonder why would they, the Pharisees and the establishment, confront Jesus at this point about divorce? Well, seeing that it was um, under the jurisdiction of Herod. Maybe they could get Jesus in, involved in this hot political topic of the day. It's what got eventually got John beheaded. So maybe they could get Jesus trapped in some words and bring some kind of indictment against him and have him arrested and figure out some way to kill him because that was their intent. They wanted Jesus off the scene. They wanted to delete him from their presence. And that was what they were after. And so they came in verse 2, as we've read there, testing him. They were not interested in what was right. They're not interested in truth. They're interested in killing Jesus. And so you've got to see that for what it really is. The, of course, the bigger picture uh, in, in this whole thing was that divorce was rampant uh, in, in the social breakdown at the time. And it was abused, this uh, writ of divorcement that was allowed in Deuteronomy there, Deuteronomy 24, uh, was being abused by the leadership. So as the leaders lead, so goes the people who follow. Divorce and remarriage was rampant in the social breakdown in Israel at the time. So was Jesus going to go against what Moses has written? Was he going to get involved in the political hot topic of the day? Would he side with the liberals? I mean, after all, Jesus is a little bit liberal in the sense that he eats with sinners. Is he going to be liberal in this area of divorce? How can we possibly catch him, you know? And one of the things, if you catch nothing else from the text, is the way Jesus answered people. I think this is so important as a believer. Uh, The priority of the scriptures. Whenever Jesus was confronted with a question, his general answer was always, the scripture what saith the scripture that should always be our priority when someone asks you a question about life and life situations that should be the question that goes off in your mind what does the scripture have to say about this particular thing and and if you don't really know off the top of your head then break out your concordance there's so many good Bible helps and programs. We are without excuse today. If you can read, you can sure research, right? <laughs> don't don't be lazy. And uh, well, I'll just call up one of the elders and ask them what they think. I think there's a lot of godly counsel that's going on in the churches today that it's not godly counsel at all. It's personal opinion, and everybody has one of those. But it it's what saith the Lord. That matters. And so, I think this is an important point here because we need to think scripturally. Jesus thought scripturally. We should think scripturally. We should have that kind of worldview. What does the Word of God say about this? And if it doesn't address the situation directly, which there are a lot of things that the Scripture does not address, then then the default position is, you have the mind of Christ. Christ. You've been given a a supercomputer on top of your shoulders and you need to use that and reason it through in prayer. What are the principles in the Bible that we can maybe apply to this situation? And then if it's not there, then sometimes it's just up to you. You need to choose. We're free moral agents and we're allowed to choose and in this context, choose a wife. We're, we're given that prerogative by God, to choose. But always bring it before the Lord. Search the scriptures. He's the great counselor. The Holy Spirit dwells, indwells you and I. And so he can guide us to the scriptures. He can guide us... To the understanding that we need to have in any given situation. But so many time people, uh, so much of the time, people are not willing to, to do that discipline. They need an answer now. I can't wait. I need to know now. Really? <laughs> if I feel push, 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 that's usually my flesh, or it could be the enemy. You never see, do you, can you picture Jesus being in a hurry? It just doesn't sit well. You know, just, just, wait, no. He was always on time. He was never late. I wish I could say that. (laughs) I've gotten better over the years. But I'm still not there. And so the answer is always from the scriptures. And I like this. Uh, In Matthew 19, he says, Have you not read? So apparently he, he was a little... He was poking a little bit. They probably hadn't in a while. But here he says, what did Moses command you? He's directing them to the word, not to the opinion of the day. But what does God say? You know, and if there's anything we can thank the the Pharisees for, which is very little, (laughs) we can thank them for this because they asked Jesus some pretty tough questions. And because they asked the questions that the disciples weren't thinking about because they didn't think like the hypocrites. They were always trying, as we'll see here, they were always trying to justify themselves in their positions as they were here. But in asking these questions, we see from Jesus the richer and deeper understanding of the law and the intent of God the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. So, thank you Pharisees for that. <laughs> right? And so in verse 4 we see that Moses permitted it. This this spirit of self-justification was present in the leadership. They completely were using this to justify their actions. And so uh, this writ of divorce to dismiss the wife was used regularly by them and so again i want to ask you as an application here where are you receiving your information for the decisions that you have to make in your life are you going with the traditions of men well that's what everybody believes the social norms You have to answer that yourself. There was a division in the culture. The uh, Shema'i and Hillel were the two schools. The, uh, Shema'i, the conservative group, uh, which the Pharisees would have adhered to, and they were uh, a right doctrinally for the most part. And the Hillel, which uh, the Sadducees would follow, uh, mostly, because they were liberal. And, for example, in this passage, the uh, Shimei placed the emphasis on the indecent. You know, if the, the, there was some uncleanness, maybe we should, uh, why want you just turn there so you at least know the scripture. Deuteronomy 24, it'll be up on the screen for some of you without a Bible. And if you're looking, if you need a Bible, there might be one in front of you under the seat. You can snag that but 24 of Deuteronomy, verse 1 reads, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. That's essentially what they refer to and so, again, the Shammai group focused on the indecent and the uh, Sadducees uh, who followed the Hillel, uh placed the thing on, uh, emphasis on anything. <laughs> and some uncleanness, you know, that's pretty wide open. And so, you know... Honey, you burnt the biscuits for the last time. You're out, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't like the way you're doing your hair this morning, you know. I mean, it was pretty. could have been rather trivial uh, in, in some cases. So uh, that's the idea there. So we have people that are in the pulpit today that are very liberal in their view of mar- marriage and divorce and, and those kinds of things. But uh, you have to ask yourself, you know, what's your world view? You know, the problem is that we have, in our culture, uh, generally speaking, we have a humanistic worldview. We've had, you know, the first 18 years of our life, going through state-run schools for the most part, we had humanism shoved down our throats. And if you are a Christian and you uh, were bringing your children to church regularly and teaching in the Bible, you know, you probably lost out on that. You know, how are you going to take, you know... If, 40 hour a 40-hour week of exposure to humanistic thought and worldview and, and compared to two hours a week on Sunday to a Christian worldview. And then we wonder why our kids go off to college and pre- they've turned their back on God you know, because they've been taught this humanistic worldview. And let me tell you, fellas, that you, those of you who are raising children right now, it's your job. You're responsible for the education of your children. You're responsible for what they are exposed to or not exposed to. And you want to be the instructor, the teacher of your children. And give them the Christian worldview. Show them the truth. Show them both views and show them the vanity of those views uh, that are against God. It's important. You know, just because the Bible tells us things that... that uh, we don't like or we don't really appreciate. It doesn't make them less true. And it doesn't make it less important to obey either. So Jesus responded to them because they were justifying themselves about using this writ of divorce. Moses allowed it because you guys have hard hearts. It's because of the hardness of your heart. Now what is the hardness of heart? Very simply, it is a spiritual condition in which you're unresponsive to truth, to the truth that God's putting down in His Word. And if you continue to down that path, you eventually will reject God, and you'll become hostile towards God. So hardness of heart is not something that we uh, want to uh, be known for or really allow ourselves to become. And so here, the establishment had become so obstinate, they refused to accept God's law. They had saw the letter of the law only, not the spirit of the law. They failed to understand that Moses was not institutionalizing divorce. He wasn't authorizing divorce by giving this writ of divorce. Actually, divorce was a way of limiting the bad behavior, the damage That was being done to some of these women uh, who had taken on uh, a relationship with uh, a husband that was unreasonable or mean and abusive. So um, divorce is a result of two people hardening their hearts against one another, in in short. And yet, verse 6, we have... uh, the lord's view on marriage, and that 's really what matters it doesn 't matter what the latest you know psych psychology professors coming up with or the latest book on marriage and and divorce and all it 's what what saith the scriptures you know Jesus takes them back to the beginning genesis one twenty seven God made male and female now regardless of what uh, you may read on social networks (laughs) or mainstream media. (laughs) There are only two genders on the planet. And that's a scientific fact. I always find that somewhat hypocritical, by the way, that the mainstream media can use science for whatever they want to prove, but when we use science, well, then that's just, you know, you're a fruitcake, you know. Really? (laughs) There are the two genders. Now there are some genetic anomalies that happen, but those are the exception, not the rule. And where human kind does not determine its gender. Oh, I want to be a girl today. <laughs> I want to be a guy today. You know, I mean, I mean, this is this is beyond absurd. So it's not how we feel. It's it's biologically already been determined before we had anything to do with it right (laughs) think about God made everything beautiful and perfect and he made you to be you and me to be me in that regard so rejoice rejoice in what God has created you can talk to him about it if you disagree with some of the physical makeups or mental makeups that you may have and shortcomings you can talk to him about that on the other side He'll or just let it go. <laughs> There's grace. God's position is that a man should leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. So the marriage covenant has two parts to it: is to leave and then to be united, and which means that man is transferring his allegiance from his parents to his spouse. This is what it's about. And the two shall become one flesh. Oneness is what the marriage relationship is all about. This is God's ideal. Now, I brought, we were talking about this not too long ago, and the one person brought up, well, that was God's ideal before the fall. So, God hasn't changed his mind, God hasn't changed his ideal. His ideal for marriage is oneness. And like God hasn't changed his mind about you and I imaging him. We still have the responsibility to represent him and take dominion in our areas and spheres of influence. It's on us to do our job. Just because the fall happened and we have a fallen nature and live in a cursed world doesn't relieve us or change God's plan and purpose. It just simply makes it a whole lot more difficult on in on every level, and especially when it comes to the marriage relationship. And so to deviate, and this is the point here, to deviate from God's ideal, what he has said is sin. And sin always incurs guilt. And if guilt is there, there must be atonement, there must be forgiveness to reconcile in relationship. We have to remember that sin is dangerous. Sin is destructive. It's destructive to the human soul and to the spirit of man and women. And so God's original plan for marriage was this oneness, but also its permanency. It was to be for the entire lifetime. The word joined together, as we read there, uh, means to be yoked together. And that's sort of how in ancient times they would refer to marriage as being yoked um, with another. And uh, Now, in that, when the sparks start to fly, because when you have two fallen people living under the same roof over a long period of time, well, even a short period of time, uh, (laughs) uh, there's going to be some sparks flying, and there's going to be issues, and there are those who sometimes come to the conclusion um, that they married the wrong person. They should never have married that person. Well, from what we read here in God's ideal, actually, it's going to be pretty hard to defend that position because God has joined together. He cho- He figured. He figured it out before the foundation of the world when you would be born and to whom family and all your surroundings. Everything about that. It's all been was preset. So uh, you chose, and so it becomes. Your choice, and you know, there's always the sufficient grace. Now, I know some of you are going to come up with some tremendous reasons why that God's grace may not be sufficient. I'm not going to give you any other answer than that, because I believe God can work powerfully. And I've seen Him do it, but I've also seen people just cash it in and say, forget it, I'm out of here. My life is too short, I don't want to go through this. And that's really is the, the humanistic worldview. I'd rather, you know, end this bad situation right now and go on and have a normal, peaceful life. Well, where's that guarantee, by the way? You know, you're just exchanging one thing for because anyone that has a hypocritical attitude as the Pharisees of self justification, it's their fault. If they wouldn't have done that, you know, blaming and all justification and all things that happened in relationship breakdown, you, do you think you're going to be in a situation to build a good relationship after an attitude that has, like that that has not been worked through? What is the after? What is, what is God after? And what is, should be the result of suffering? Whether it's pain and sorrow through other broke down, broken relationships? We all suffer. We all have failures. The result of that should be like little children. Brokenness. Mommy, Daddy, this is, this is bad. Help me. This hurts. We should be crying out to God in brokenness. So um, I think this is critical. The Pharisees were self-justifying. If you have a self-justifying attitude, you're not broken. And if you're not broken, you're not going to get healed. And if you don't heal, you're going to carry this wound and you're going to live in pain. You're going to live, it's going to be a, another form of suffering. And so I can understand why this is placed in this context uh, of suffering. There's a lot of suffering that can go on in marriage. And it comes back down to having a tender heart like a child, being forgiving knowing that you've been forgiving, but then extending that forgiving, forgiveness to others. So uh, the other thing that stands out to me here is that what God has joined together in verse 9, let not man separate. I would not want to be a divorced lawyer standing before the throne of God. But if in the context here, and understanding the times in which they lived, Jesus is putting the onus, I believe, back on the man, because women were sort of treated more like property. And the man could kind of do whatever he wanted. So let not man, anthropos, you know, man, let not man put asunder. Husbands, you shouldn't be doing this to your wife. Which I think is the implication there, because look what he said uh, to the disciples in 11 and 12 there. You know, the woman's committing adultery in this, but not the man. That was sort of the attitude because we are, well, we're the men. You know, it's our world. And we, and we can do whatever we want. No, he's putting it, look. Not only is the woman forced into, you know, because divorce ultimately leads to sexual union usually with after afterwards. So that's adultery. And... Jesus is not letting the man off the hook here. Let not man separate. But I also think it applies to lawyers too. But beside <laughs> the point. <laughs> now, this happened in the Corinthian church. There were things going on, and it was a pretty prevalent thing in the culture back then. Uh, the Roman culture as well as what was going on in Israel. And Paul addressed divorce uh, in the to the. Uh, with the corinthian church and this is uh first corinthians 7 12 through 16 if you're taking notes and i'll sort of rush through this as we come to the end here Uh, first just real quickly a man should not divorce his wife and this the context of this situation is between a believer and an unbeliever You have a believing man and an unbelieving wife, this is how you conduct yourself. You have a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, this is how you should conduct yourself. So, this is the context that Paul talked about it that a man should not divorce his wife and a wife should not divorce her husband just because they're unbelievers. Well, you know, I've got saved and he's he's still the jerk he's ever been and he's not saved, so I'm out of here. You know, no, no, hold on. You know, Paul's not saying that. Uh, He charges that uh, you should not separate. Uh, but give God a chance to bring them uh, to the knowledge of salvation through Christ. He also makes it clear that the children that are born in that relationship are set apart because of the believer. They're not saved, but they're, they're not unclean. They're not rejects, in other words. Um, Paul's... What some people might call a little Pollyanna ish towards this situation in the hopes that the unbeliever will come around. But if the unbeliever departs, the believer is not held accountable for that action. That's on them, and God's called us to peace. So there's a lot here. The bottom line here is divorce is a concession. And it was a result of the rebellious attitude, first with God's people, as he stated in the law there, and it, but it's contrary to God's original intention in creation. Because marriage actually represents the oneness that God wants to have with mankind God created you and I to be one with Him. We'll see this in John 17. We'll probably visit that before we observe communion this morning. And that's important. The idea of marriage is oneness. The two shall become one flesh. We are united with God through faith because our sins have been atoned for through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are probably wondering, like, are there any grounds for divorce? Of course, Matthew nineteen nine 9 uh, is the exception clause. And just understand and be reminded of that divorce is an act of violence. Two people's hearts are being ripped in half. A family's being destroyed. Oneness is being destroyed. The family unit is being torn apart. It's very dramatic and very emotional trauma that people experience. I went through that as a child a couple of times. It's not, it creates so much insecurity in the children. Oh, they'll get over it, you know. No, not really. They may continue to breathe and go on, (laughs) right? But there's pain there. But God can give grace uh, and we... And for those who have experienced it, there's mercy and grace and there's healing. Time doesn't heal anybody, but God, through counsel and through His Word, can really turn a person around and heal those wounds that were the result of divorce. Like I said before, where else are people going to go? And by no means are people who have experienced divorce second-rate Christians. I've seen some tremendous marriages of people who have gone through it and then remarried and through faith. Because why? They were broken and repentant towards God. They, weren't, they never sought to justify their actions. In their, in their, they realized there was guilt in their lives. They were part of the problem. And their hearts were, had hardened towards their previous spouse. And when you do that, you're free. When you, it's when we admit and confess, we're freed. And until we come to that point, we're still in bondage. We have to learn to let people off the hook. And that's what uh, forgiveness is all about. And again, the Pharisees were missing the point. Look, fellas, Jesus is communicating something here. Divorce is not desirable. It is the last resort. It is the very last resort for safety, safety of the children, and of the wife, potentially, from harm and danger, Contrary to that, as a spouse, my responsibility is to seek, to enhance and improve my relationship with my spouse at every turn. I've yet to see a woman leave her husband because he was so much like Jesus. It's a rare occasion, right? So, it's just interesting as he uses... uh, The children here at the end has a, again, an example. Uh, Bringing the little children. And this is so important because there's some, some sometimes, and I'm not going to totally connect this with divorce, but they're the forgotten ones. It's always, it's about him and her. And they're the collateral damage in that relationship. The children. That God has given to us our precious gifts, they have such soft, tender hearts and it's and it's our job as adults as parents to protect them and protect that innocence uh, that is present there as they grow and the disciples were just acting like. And, it, and really just acting out the social norm of the day. And it's not much different than today. Children are not that important. They're to be seen and not heard, you know. But Jesus cares very much, very much how children are treated. And He was actually, the word there, he was greatly displeased. He was indignant. He was really upset. You guys can argue about how great you are, but this really fries me. Don't do this. Don't. Hold the children back from me. We're seeing God's heart for children. I think it's very precious. They're not a bother. They're important little people to God, and they need guidance. They're not a waste of time. They should be our main focus. Notice Jesus took them up in his arms and He laid His hands on them. Now laying out of hands is a very critical thing uh, in our Christian walk. When we lay hands on people, many of you know this, but it is the idea of identification. When we lay hands on someone to anoint them with oil and pray, we're identifying with their need and their need for forgiveness and the healing touch that God can give. And it's also a thing of transfer that's involved there. And Those are important truths. So the the symbol of it all is so critical. Laying hands on the children and praying for them and blessing them. It's a beautiful thing. It's one of the things we do here at Calvary Chapel is we uh, lay hands on the little ones and we dedicate them to the Lord. And when you dedicate one to the Lord, it's um, it's His <laughs> And you know when something belongs to God, he's pretty jealous over what's His, and He protects and keeps and in in an, and in a sense we're we're actually dedicating the parents to their responsibility to raise the child and nurture and admonition of the Lord and to teach the scriptures to the children. And again, Jesus refers uh, to the little children here in this context of suffering, in this context of being a servant, this whole thing of uh, most innocent children uh, do not have hardened hearts. Little kids don't harden their hearts. It's only after abuse and ill treatment that that hardness begins to set in on a little person. And so I think it very uh, apt that Jesus uses children to express servanthood and the humility that goes along with that to to illustrate greatness and the need to have a soft, tender heart and to be kind and tender-hearted toward one another. Now turn with me as we close here. We're going to observe communion together. Turn with me to John 17. And just, again, a reminder... This is the last setting with the disciples and his prayer um, for them. Verse 20 says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you also loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you have sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, that's where we're all going as the family of God. We're going to experience a complete oneness with God. Sin will be no more. God has prepared a place and is preparing a place for us all where this oneness will be a, a, an experienced reality for each one of us. He's sort of letting us practice right now. (laughs) You know, practice makes perfect, you know. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard to, because of our fallenness, to admit we're wrong, to ask for forgiveness, to extend forgiveness. But that's what we must do. Where's God heading with this? Oneness. He's bringing... You and your spouse into oneness. He's bringing the members of the body of Christ into oneness. And he will eventually bring us all together in one body, in oneness, in an eternal state. That's where it's headed. Oneness. So as you partake of the elements this morning, do so in the privacy of your own heart. Where are you at in your Oneness. With God. Are you of those who justify your sin and think maybe that you're in no need of forgiveness? There are those who fight self-righteousness. I think we all do to some degree. That's for sure. But it's best to just confess your sins. Mm -hmm. Humble yourself before God as you take that cup. Realize that we are never to forget what it costs to redeem us to provide that forgiveness. We'll never get beyond the cup and the bread. It is always there to remind us of what it costs. It covers our past, it deals with our present, and it seals our future with Him. So, fellas, if you'll come, uh, Chelsea, if you'll come, and we share a song, commune in our hearts. This act of worship of communion is between you this morning the privacy of your own heart before him so I'm not going to interrupt that I'm going to let you have that to yourself